you're right. You're right about this chapter. And you get a feeling of what you where you were and what was happening, huh? Oh, I forgot I had written this. But then again, I write everything. I'm Margaret Pothig, and this is Keeping Dad Alive. This season of the podcast is about vocation. After my dad, Richard, retired from the United Presbyterian Church USA in 1990, he continued doing what he had been doing his entire career, writing about his work. But this time, he penned a more personal history of his vocation. He produced two memoirs of his early years, and he published articles in the Journal of Presbyterian History about the men in the Presbyterian Church who had paved the way for his vocation in urban industrial mission. Charles Stelsley, Cameron Hall, Marshall Logan Scott, Henry Jones, and others. In this episode of the podcast, my dad reads the last chapter of his personal memoir about the voyage he and my mom Eunice and my three older siblings, Scott, Carrie, and Johanna, took in 1957 across the United States and the Pacific Ocean to Japan, where my dad met up with Henry Jones and Marshall Scott, and then on to the Philippines, where my family spent 15 years as fraternal workers. I hope to follow up with a few more episodes about those beloved years in the life and vocation of my family. In full disclosure, I recorded my dad reading this chapter last week when he still had some strength. But as I publish this, my father is embarking on his final journey. He is in hospice. He told his doctor that he was looking forward to it. I really am, he said. All these things were astounding to me that I was in the world that I was in. I mean, your life was being opened up. I know, it was a pretty big, bold move. No, 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 it was a bold move. And I was hoping it was also, for Eunice, a bold move. She wanted to go, didn't she, Dad? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, she was ready to do that. (laughs) Chapter 10, Welcome to a New World. Left by train in late February, westbound to San Francisco. We traveled first from Dayton to Chicago. Then we changed trains in Chicago for our westward journey. We had decided on train travel since we were carrying much luggage for our family of five. We had a sleeper. It was tight quarters for the five of us. But we were building ourselves up for the small quarters we would face for almost two weeks on the President Wilson. Johanna was not yet five months old and needed the constant attention of Eunice. My imagination was stretched to the limits, keeping three-and-a-half-year-old Scott and one-and-a-half-year-old Kerry engaged and in good spirits. We were bone-weary by the time our train rolled into San Francisco. It was my first time on the West Coast, so the city was a refreshing change from the cities of the East. We were expected at the offices of the Mission Board to check on our last-minute arrangements and accommodations in Japan where we would disembark. 
I had already been notified by Henry Jones, the industrial missioner in Japan, that I was expected to be at an industrial evangelism conference in Ito, Japan, a train ride south of Tokyo. Day came in for our boarding of the President Wilson. We arrived at the dock with our baggage. Crowds of people were seeing our friends and family. We struggled up the gangway with our luggage, Eunice carrying Johanna, I guiding Terry along the way with one hand and carrying luggage in the other. Scott carried a small bag. We were downstairs in the second class accommodations. We found our room and threw open the door. It was a few square feet larger than the room we had had on the train. I moaned, thinking of the two weeks of those close quarters with three active children. On a ship, we at least had the decks and the open air in the sea to use up some of their energy. Scott and Carrie took to their new environment with a great deal of excitement. This was another adventure for them. They were getting used to our continual change of scenery. They had been at this now since July and had been in eight different living spaces since that time. We got our bags unpacked and clothes stashed away in the drawers of the small closet allowed for our hanging items. The loudspeaker suddenly boomed. Last call, all ashore going ashore. I took Scott and Kerry up on the deck and we watched the last visitors leave the ship. We stood at the railing as the anchor was hoisted and the ship slowly pulled away from the dock. People at the ship's railings waved their final goodbyes to those standing on the dock below. Tugboats latched onto the guide ropes as the President Wilson was pulled out into the bay and finally under its own power, moved away from the skyline of San Francisco. We all made our promenade around the decks, past the swimming pool, through the ballroom and the children's play areas. Scott and Carrie were on a high. The noise of the engines and the motion of the ship guiding through the water had given them a feeling of euphoria. We finally headed back to our tight quarters and everyone went down for a nap. Our next call was for dinner. A family was assigned a table for the duration of our sea voyage. This would become one of the more familiar places for the next two weeks. We sat down to our round-shaped table. Scott and Kerry were given red-checkered bibs to match the tablecloth. Our waiter was a friendly Filipino who enjoyed the children. He was pleased that we were bound for the Philippines. The children took to this new setting. We felt like we had established a place for the first time since we left Dayton. The food was delicious and it was one of the best parts of the trip across the Pacific. I, I don't remember that. <laughs> good, good, we had delicious food. I'm happy for that.
We made quick passage to Hawaii. The railings were filled with people as we saw the islands off in the distance. We sailed past the low-lying hills of Oahu Island. Both Scott and Kerry stood on the second rung of the railings as a ship glided through the waters past the shoreline of Hawaii. There was a sense of security seeing land so close. We were guided into Honolulu Harbor as the sun broke through the low-lying clouds. Eunice had written her cousin Peggy Place that we would be stopping in Honolulu on our way to Japan. After we had docked, the places located us in our stateroom. Eunice had not seen her cousin for many, many years. They decided to take us to their home on the other side of Oahu. It was a scenic drive. We drove through the downtown commercial section and passed the residential areas and onto a road that wove around the island. We left major settlement behind and entered into a rich, lush, green landscape. The air seemed to become lighter as we drove around the back of the island. We reached their home, a retreat in the midst of the green profusion. It was a wonderful place and refreshing after the closed-in environment of the President Wilson. Our visit ended too quickly. The places set out a snack of Hawaiian fruit, and when we finished, we were on our way back to the ship. It was just the break we needed in preparation for our long journey across the rest of the Pacific. We were back on the President Wilson as the darkness descended. We waved our last farewell to Dick and Peggy Place as they descended the gangplank. We stood by the rail as an Hawaiian combo on dock played the songs of the islands. The ship moved away from the brightly lighted dock and out into the darkness of the ocean. We turned in early that night. The children were exhausted from a full day of color and excitement. There were many things to do in the crossing of the Pacific. There was a children's program which gave us a respite from the 24-hour attention. Johannan still needed constant care, except when she went down for her nap. The years had her break to play in the water with Scott and Kerry. We took time to engage in the shuffleboard matches. The passage was peaceful as one day passed into another. Standing by the rail, watching the waves breaking on the endless ocean became mesmerizing. mesmerizing. One hoped for the sight of porpoises or perhaps even a whale in the vast expanse of the sea. One of the breaks came halfway through the voyage when ceremonies were held for the crossing of the dateline. Watches and clocks were suddenly to be reset. We would gain a day. We were now about a day out of Yokohama, the port where we would be landing in Japan. We began to get all our belongings together. Scott and Kerry had picked up on our excitement. We had our last delicious dinner. We bid our Filipino way goodbye with many thanks for serving us so well on our journey. 
The children slept soundly all last night. I dozed in and out of a half sleep. My mind was on the arrangements made for our arrival. I worried first about getting from Yokohama to our hotel in Tokyo with our belongings. I thought about the language problem. Would we be understood? I thought about leaving Eunice with the children to attend the three-day program set up in Eito, wherever that was. My anticipation and anxiety heightened as we woke to see, in the distance, the landfall of Japan. We were about three hours before docking in Yokohama. As we finished breakfast, the ship was moving to Yokohama Harbor. We stood by the railing to become acquainted with the world we were about to become part of, the world of Asia. We had arrived on a very gray winter day in March. Yokohama matched the color of the day. The wharves and the cargo on the docks waiting for transshipment gave a very cold commercial look to the port area. It was not an inviting scene, but it was one in which I would become quickly accustomed. I could not help thinking about the children and their first impression of this new world. The ship made the final approach to the dock allocated for the arrival. Huge ropes were thrown down for securing. The anchor was let down, the gangplank was dropped. We looked down on the faces below. Many were there to welcome passengers leaving the ship in Yokohama. We hoped that somewhere in the crowd would be a person delegated to help us through the next steps of our journey in Japan. As soon as the gangplank was secured, the Japanese customs and immigration officials came on board. It was a perfunctory task since we were the only making a stopover in Japan. I already had the confirmation of our Air France flight to Manila. I went back to our stateroom to assess our next steps with Eunice. I was greeted happily as I came in the door. Eunice excitedly introduced me to Paul Wynn, who had come to help us get ourselves to the Shiba Park Hotel in Tokyo. Paul Wynn was a Presbyterian missionary assigned to Kiyodan, the United Church of Christ in Japan. Henry Jones had asked Paul to assist us getting to the Shiba Park Hotel. Paul helped us to get our luggage off the ship. We crammed into his small car, but that was a natural state for us. And everywhere I traveled, I found my size disadvantage, whether in a taxi or in a bus or in a train. Our journey took us through the crowded thoroughfares in the streets of Yokohama and on into Tokyo. We looked in amazement at the passing scene. We were engulfed in a language we could not understand. We could not tell where we were going by street signs, but we trusted that Paul went and knew the way. Along the way, Paul carried on a continual conversation, providing us with insights into the Japanese situation, telling us all about his and his wife's work, and asking about our own background. We finally arrived at the Shiva Park Hotel. It was March 11th. Our Air France reservations to Manila were for March 18th. We had one week in Japan. It was good to finally get settled into our two connected rooms. There was more space than we had in the last three weeks of travel. Waiting for me at the desk was a telegram from Henry Jones. It read, 
Welcome to a new world, the Far East. Dr. Franklin plans to bring you tomorrow to the Industrial Evangelism Conference. Henry Jones wastes no time, Paul Wynn said. Eunice and I would have less than a full day together. She we left with the children for three days. We went downstairs to look over the dining room and to review the menu. Scott and Kerry were confused by the different people around them. The people spoke a language that they could not understand. We took time with Scott particularly to help him understand that we were in a new country, that the people were different. They were friendly people and they would try to help us. We're not sure how the message was sinking in. After supper, I had a call from Sam Franklin. He said he would come by the hotel in the mid-morning and take me to the Tokyo train station. And with some apprehension, I left Jesus and the children. We headed for the Tokyo station. It was like any other train station except there seemed to be more people. It was midday and the platform was packed with people. Our train finally arrived and we moved with the crowd through the doors. There was a pusher on the platform whose only job was to cram people into the train. I finally had a chance to talk to Sam Franklin. He was a professor of social ethics at Union Seminary in Tokyo. He told me about the Kiyodan, the United Church of Japan, and about the industrial program, how it was organized. He filled me in with the work of Henry Jones and how effective he had been in pressing the industrial work forward. Ito, I learned, was a hot spring spa on the ocean. It was halfway down the coast between Tokyo and Osaka. It was near Hamamatsu, a major industrial town south of Tokyo. He also mentioned Masao Takanaka, whom he said was a major figure in the industrial evangelism program. He was a professor at the seminary at Toshisha University in Kyoto. Takanaka was one of the most important figures and thinkers in developing the theology which undergirded the work of industrial evangelism. I would also be meeting many of the young pastors who had come under the influence of Masao Takanaka and who were the backbone of the industrial program. By the time we had reached the Hamamatsu station, I felt that I had a good sketch of the people and the program of industrial evangelism in Japan. We arrived at the Hot Springs Inn at which the conference was being held just before supper time. Henry John was there big as life to greet me. We had been in correspondence since July 1956, but this was our first meeting. Henry was a huge bear of a man. He had a large head, bald on the top, but framed on both sides with shocks of white hair. His face was almost expressionless but he had an emphatic way of talking which gave his words importance. He was intensely involved in what he was saying and caught his audience up in his message. He told me that he was happy that I was on the scene. He also said that there was a great gang of people in the Philippines to make industrial mission work happen there. Before he was through, a familiar figure came around the corner, Marshall Scott, I'd come to Asia to visit the people in the programs which were just getting underway. It was good to see Marshall again after seven years. He told me how happy he was that I was going to the Philippines. How important it was that we were laying a foundation for the church's work in industry in Asia. Before he was through, we got the call for dinner. This is great stuff. <laughs>
<laughs> no, I really covered every every minute of yeah, this of yeah, this journey. I did, I did. I covered every minute of this journey. Wow, amazing! I love it. <laughs> Before dinner, I was shown to the room in which I was to sleep. There were no doors to swing open. Instead, the geisha slid a partition open, and Sam Franklin and I stepped into a room lit by natural light. The partitions were all translucent. There were no beds in the room, only mats to sleep on, and a heavy comforter to sleep under. <laughs> This was a new world for me. I was finding intriguing experience round every corner. Sam Franklin and I set down our bags, and we were shown to the room. We would take our meals. Others had already gathered and were seated on pillows on the floor. Low square tables were set around the edge of the room. We took our places at one table. A blessing in Japanese was said. The food was brought in by geishas, and soon we were all deeply engaged in eating. Although I had been used to chopsticks before, this was the beginning of a long romance of learning how to eat Japanese and Chinese foods at a leisurely pace. Yeah, you better believe it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. This is so good. This is so good. I mean, I I caught every moment of this thing. <laughs> does it Does it bring back memories? Oh then? yeah, no, no. It's so it's it's so great. Can you yeah. picture it? Oh yeah, no, no, I can picture it. After dinner, Masao Takanaga took over the proceedings. He immediately moved to introductions. Since Marshall Scott was an honored guest, Masao began with him. Masao had recently been at Yale Divinity School and had participated in the Presbyterian Institute of Industrial Relations Summer Ministers and Industry Program. He claimed Marshall for the work he had done through the Peer Program, and told how he was one of the founders of the Industrial Mission Program. He induced Henry Jones with some affection, both in Japanese and in English, and gave thanks for the groundwork he was doing in industrial evangelism in Japan. The tables had been cleared, and Takanaka got into the gist of the evening discussion. He touched upon every early response of the churches to industrialization, mostly through the work of Kagawa, and finally to the post-war period. He described the nature of industrial mission at that moment, and then called for responses from the other participants to detail their own work and their thoughts. I took whatever opportunity they had to sit. In on the conversation which Marshall Scott and Henry Jones might be having with Takanaka, I also took the chance to talk with Masao Takanaka. He welcomed me to the meeting and said he looked forward to our continual conversation on the work developing in the Philippines. I went to bed bone tired. The weather was still cold outside, and I wondered how the rooms were heated. I see no visible signs of heating fixtures. I learned that some of the heat was generated from the hot coals in the large ceramic bowls in the center of the room. The next day, I had one of my most traumatic cultural experiences. After the afternoon session, I was invited to take a hot bath. This is why we were in Ito. 
to take advantage of the hot springs. I was given a locker and was given a towel the size of an ordinary washcloth. This was to be my only cloth for washing and drying. Henry undressed, hung his clothes in the locker, along with the eyeglasses, and went through the doors to the bath. I followed suit and took my postage size towel with me. Postage stamp. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and took my postage stamp towel with me. I kept on my glasses since I, I needed to see where I was going. I opened the door and walked into the hot steam. My glasses crowded over, and all I could hear were voices. Mingled among the voices were women's voices. This was a co-ed experience. I quickly retreated back into the locker room. My glasses were no help. <laughs> I left them in the locker and took a deep breath and groped my way through the steam to the edge of the gargantuan steaming bathtub. I stumbled over a small stool. <laughs> I can't remember anything. Maybe you made it all up there. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm sure this happened. <laughs> Henry Jones called out, you're supposed to wash yourself thoroughly before you you come into the tub. There's a bucket beside the stool. Pour the water over you. I dutifully followed the instructions. The water seemed boiling hot as I doused myself gingerly. My washcloth was of little use. I looked for a free corner of the tub and slowly slid into the hot springs. I hit the bottom of the tub and giving a deep gasp, stood still. I looked around me to see many amused faces. Welcome to Japan, Henry said. <laughs> Conference proceeded on in the next two days. We finished up in the morning on the third day and we would catch the afternoon train back to Tokyo. I arrived in time for supper and a very relieved Eunice. She had many stories to tell about her adventures with three youngsters in a Japanese hotel. Her main occupation was heading off cultural misunderstandings. While I was gone, she told me, she'd been trying to get in touch with Reg Arvidsson so we could plan a meeting while we were in Tokyo. Reg was a friend from Dayton high school days who was serving as a lawyer in the U.S. Army in Japan. After many tries, she finally got him on the phone. Johanna, who was lying on the bed, began to cry. One of the maids who had come in to do her daily cleanup picked up Johanna to try to comfort her. Suddenly, there was a blood-curdling scream. <laughs> and Eunice turned from the phone to see Scott kicking the young Japanese maid. Scott thought she was stealing his sister. The maid dropped Johanna on the bed and beat a hasty retreat out of the room. Oh, Eunice was destroyed. Here she was, called to share Scott's love with the people of Asia. Her first encounter was with a disaster. A friendly Japanese woman advised her not to interfere further or she might get the maid fired. Carrie was frightened. Johanna was none the worse for the affair.
Paul Lynn had called to take us on a sightseeing tour on the day before our departure. He brought along his eight-year-old daughter to amuse Carrie and Scott. We visited the shrines and walked through the carefully sculpted parks of the city. I remember these pictures. The weather was still cold enough to wear our outer coats. Our tour was a great break from the now too familiar face of the Shigapalak Hotel. We stopped for lunch in an ornate shop on a side street. We looked over the menu and on the window, which was fortunately translated into English, pondering what to feed Scott and Carrie. We ordered soba, a broth with wide Japanese noodles. We hit it lucky. Scott loved the soba. We got back to the hotel and gave a parting farewell to Paul and his daughter. I went to the desk to get our room key. My eye caught the headline of the English newspaper published in Tokyo. McSaisa of the Philippines killed in an air crash in Cebu. My heart sank. I could not believe what I was reading. He and a number of staff and newspaper reporters had crashed into a mountainside on takeoff from the Mactan airport. The Philippines was in shock. McSaisai had built up a reputation as a problem solver. He had brought peace in central Lusan after 15 years of insurgency of the Huck guerrillas. His land resettlement program in Mindanao had broken the back of major Huck rank-and-file action. What would this mean for the country? Would his vice president, Garcia, be able to continue his program? What kind of man was he? We would be arriving in Manila at a time of great uncertainty. The next morning, we left for the airport in two taxis. We were made for the Air France counter. We had our seats confirmed and our baggage weighed and ticketed. We asked about the McSaisai death, whether that would have any effect on our arrival in Manila. We were told the government would be flying McSaisai's body into Manila Airport from Cebu about the same time as our arrival, so there would be some delays. We boarded the Air France flight. We passed over fields with different colors of green, some brighter, some darker, some lighter. There were rice fields at different stages of growth. As we got closest to the airport, the roads around the airport were lined with people. We landed and stopped at the tarmac in front of the main building. Carrie insisted on putting on her blue winter coat. Told her we was not going to be cold in the Philippines, but no avail. We neared the door, and as Carrie stepped out into the platform, the heat of the Philippines came at her in a blast. In one motion, she whipped off her winter coat and dragged it in her hand down the steps of the plane. We looked at the crowd peering out of the windows. We hunted for a friendly face. As we went inside, I caught glimpse of a wave of greeting from the crowd. We were obviously distinguishable. A mother, a father, an infant, and two small children. We were hustled off through immigration. Our passports were inspected. All our papers were in order. We were stamped through. Next came customs. All of our taxable goods would be arriving by ship and would have to pass customs at that time. 
We were cleared through customs. When we got out the gate, a Filipino introduced himself to us. His name was Nicanor Primavera, who worked at the Philippine Interboard Office. He told us he was happy that we had arrived safely, but he immediately said that we would have to move quickly because the plane with McSai's body was expected to arrive in the next hour. We piled into his car with all our belongings and we headed toward the Interboard guest house which would be our first home in the Philippines. The road from the airport was crowded with people, many of them in mourning. This is a sad day for the Filipino people, Nicanor Primavera confided. It will be hard to know what McSai's death will mean. You are arriving at a turning point in Philippine history. The music in this podcast is Balti, Crumbtown, Noa Noa, Delamine, Burrow, and Hakodate Line by Blue Dot Sessions. For links to my dad's writings, go to richardpothig.com. And thank you for listening. So we did it, we did it, we did it. Yeah, we did the whole thing. Wow! <laughs> you did it, Dad. I did it, baby! <laughs>